Let's open our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. We've been going through the book of 1 Peter and we're nearing the end here. But don't be sad. We'll stretch it out. We'll take our time. 1 Peter 5. Um, if you were here last week, we talked about, uh, you know, when the scripture says how the elders should behave themselves, how pastors should treat the flock, how they should do it in submission to the head of the flock, which is Jesus Christ, and how they shouldn't lord over the people that are in their care. They shouldn't dominate. They shouldn't, you know, devour or feed off of them. Now he's going to move on from those that are in charge to those that are serving, those that are somewhat moving up the ladder, some of the young ones and some of the new ones in the body of Christ. And here's the encouragement that he gives to them. And, and maybe you're there right now. Maybe you've been there where you know what it's like to have all of this stuff inside of you and be excited to serve the Lord and yet not know when, not know how he's going to make that happen. A lot of us, God gives you glimpses of your future. God gives you glimpses of the things that he's planned for you. And it is our nature. The more we know, the more we try to make it happen on our own, which is probably why God doesn't show you everything all at once. It's probably why he doesn't give you every bit of the plan because our, our nature is we will take the, as the crow flies distance from here to there. Whatever the shortest route, that's the way we'll take. That's not always the best route, is it? And so, uh, you know, if I were to go, when my wife, uh, before we were married and she lived in, in Washington, in Spokane, I would drive down there and, you know, it would be a lot faster if I could just uh, draw a line on the map and draw a straight line to Spokane and take that route. But that would also involve me crashing into some mountains, and that's not a healthy thing for you. So we, I understood that the shortest route, the, the most direct route, isn't always the best route. And in fact, God will take you the way that is, leads to the best growth, that will lead to you being um, most fulfilled and to his kingdom purposes being established. And so here's what he says to the young ones. Here's what he says to the new ones. He says this. Uh, let's once again just read the verse that goes before it. Uh, Actually, we'll start in verse 5. 1 Peter 5, 5. He says, You younger men likewise, be subject to your elders. Now, you realize when he says younger men, women, he's including you too, right? You know that you're not just saying, I'm exempt. He said men. I can do what I want. This doesn't apply to me. That, of course, that's silly. Uh, but he's saying younger people, here's what you do. You submit, be subject to your elders. And then he says all of you. So elders, young ones, everybody together, all of you, Clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Just stop there for a second and think about what it means to clothe yourselves in humility. Not just an air of humility, not just a pretended attitude of humility, but we're talking about covering yourselves in humility. That's how you present yourself. That's how you speak. That's how you think. You know, there's, there's a section in Scripture that says, each one of you have humility of, have humility of mind and regard one another as more important than yourselves. Notice that that verse doesn't say that other people are more important than you, right? Tony's no more important to God than I am. I'm no more important to God than he is. But I treat him as if he's more important than I am. Do you understand the difference? You have to know that God's value placed on you is the value that he was willing to pay. The value he was willing to pay was, was, was Jesus' own life, right? That's how much you're worth is the life of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, loses his soul? 
So Jesus right there says one soul is worth more than the whole world. Your value is, is I mean, it's, it's almost unimaginable how, how valuable you are to God. So you shouldn't doubt that and you don't need to doubt that. It doesn't say everybody else is more important than you. It says you treat them as if they are. When you treat people like they're more important than you, there's a grace to that. There's, a, there's an honor that God bestows on you. Jesus, of course, said this over and over again. We just read, he says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Jesus says this over and over again. He says the, the, the proud God opposes, but he exalts the humble. He says this three times in the Gospels. It's one of those things that he repeats exactly each time. Just think about that. Now, first of all, just before we get to the, the humble part, does anybody here think it would be a good idea to be opposed by God? I mean, think about it. We know what it's like. We, we're always talking about God being on our side. If God is for us, who can be against us, right? Have you ever thought of how futile your plans are if God himself is opposed to you? How's that going to work out? The Bible says, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders are laboring in vain. They're wasting their time. So there is, there is this um, a totally polar opposite here where he's saying, God is opposing the proud, but what does he do? He gives grace to the humble. So think of God giving grace to you as the opposite of him opposing you, okay? Think of what it would be like if God was opposing you. Everything you tried, nothing would work. You'd feel like at every turn, this is just not, this, I feel like something's stopping me. I feel like something's putting me down. But think about the opposite of that. The opposite of being opposed, being helped, being assisted, be, you know, strength that's not yours coming to your aid. That's what God is giving you. This is that grace that he's referring to, that grace that empowers you to do what he called you to do. He gives grace to the humble. Humility is always the thing that comes before receiving the grace of God. You have to be humble. Before you were born again, you had to come to the realization that you needed a savior. Isn't that right? Right? If you, if you, the Apostle Paul said, my prayer for my brethren is that they would realize that, that he says, my prayer for them, my brethren is that be, they'd be saved because their problem is, is that clinging to their own and trying to establish their own righteousness, they neglect the righteousness which is from God. What he's saying there is in their efforts of trying so hard to make themselves right before God and to make themselves good enough and to make sure that they themselves in their own righteousness are clean before the Lord, they're neglecting the help that God is so freely offering them. God's giving them righteousness. He's offering them righteousness as a gift. He's saying, here, I paid it. I did it for you. Take it. But their own pride is resisting the grace of God. So let's, let's just look at it. It's very simple. God is opposing the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Just think about what, it's, what your life is like if you're living it in a state of grace, if you're living it by the grace of God. Grace is one of those things that so many people define different ways. Some define it narrowly. Some define it broadly. Some define it as God covering up for your boo-boo. Some define it as God um, empowering you to do this. And, and in fact, it means many different things, but it is God doing what we can't do. It is the gift of God. We obtain grace by faith. But faith only comes through humility, doesn't it? Why? Because faith is saying, God, I need you. The proud person doesn't need God. Proud person's got himself. 
But the, the one who's humble, listen, what does it say? It says, uh, you know, when we, we talk about the righteous one living by faith, that, that originally comes from the Old Testament. And it talks about the proud. Look at the proud. He is, he's up, he's up, lifts himself up in spirit. But my righteous one will live by faith, the scripture says. So pride is the opposite of faith. Pride puts yourself as the source. Pride puts yourself as the power. He says, look at the proud one. He's uplifted in his own soul. He's, he's exalting himself, but my righteous one. Notice the proud guy is not living by faith, and because he's not living by faith, he's not righteous. But my righteous one will live by faith. He says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The next verse, he says this. Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he might exalt you in the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Something so wonderful about that verse in verse six. So many people have a weird view of the mighty hand of God. Think about you being under the hand of God. There's many people who would think, if I'm under the hand of God, he's keeping me down. You know what I'm saying? God's got his hand on me. He's got my hand. I mean, I can't, I I, want to get myself up. I need to exalt myself and yet his hand. But he says, put yourself under his hand. And that hand, that same hand, it's going to do two things. Number one, it's going to protect you during that time. That mighty hand of God shields you in that time. And then it exalts you. That same hand that covers you exalts you and lifts you up in the proper time. If you've ever dug a carrot up before it's ready. You ever dug a potato up before it's ready? I mean, there are, there's, there's just, there's something so great about how God designed the universe to have times and seasons. And everything is beautiful in its season. But things that are beautiful in their season can also be very uh, wrong out of season, can't they? they, can, they they're not pretty. They're not tasty. They, they're, they're not something you'd want to put in your body. There is a season. And it's not the same for everybody. God has, a season for your, has seasons for your life. And every single one of them is, is, is just as good as the last. So many times we're aiming for the end goal. I'm aiming for that, that big stage. I'm aiming for that big, you know, the big thing that God's called me to that we don't realize that throughout our life, every season you're in is just as glorious, has the potential to be just as glorious as the one before and the one after. Gee, you know, the scripture says this. It says that there are those in the body who aren't presentable members of the body. In other words, they're not the parts you're showing off. But to those members, God bestows more abundant honor. Those people don't get the applause. They don't get the, the, the congratulations. They don't get a lot of eyes on them. But God sees those people and puts more honor on them than anybody else. I've said this to you before. You've heard me use this analogy, but it's apt. When I fell in love with my wife, I mean, I fell in love with who she was as a person. But of course, as a man, and God puts you together with a woman, there's physical attraction as well. But you know what? I never said to her, Tia, you have the most beautiful liver I have ever seen. You have the most beautiful, oh my goodness. I, if I could just, you know, if I could just stare at your kidneys all day. No, no, not from the outside. I mean like an x-ray. If I could look at an x-ray of your kidneys. I, I never said that. They're not beautiful to me. I, I mean, I, well, I'm sure they're beautiful. Don't tell T I didn't say they were beautiful. 
<laughs> Why do you have a problem with my kidneys? No, I don't. They weren't the thing I was immediately attracted to. Why? Because we see what's on the outside. Our culture, think about our heroes in our culture. Who are our heroes? Who are the people we, we if, who are the strangers people know facts about? Entertainment, right? People on a stage, people on a screen, people on your, your radio. These are the people we, we exalt. And so we're trained to give more abundant honor to the people who, who are, do a flashier job. You're trained to give people more abundant honor if they're on a stage. You're trained to give people more abundant honor if they're well-spoken. But what the scripture says is that God will bestow more abundant honor on the people that aren't out front, on the people that maybe don't seem like they're doing as cool or as big of a job as somebody else. But God's the one that doles out the honor. Now, if you find yourself in the position of being on a stage with a microphone and people are looking at you, do it with humility then you'll still get honor from God. Jesus said this. He said to the Pharisees, he says, you pray out loud in such a way that make sure everybody hears you. When you fast, you put on a sad face and sad clothes so that everybody knows you're fasting. He says, you already have your reward. Now, what's he saying? There's a reward for prayer. There's a reward for fasting. But if your reward is people thinking you're holier than everybody else, you've got your reward. So there's a way you handle the stage. There's a way you handle whatever ministry God's putting you in. What did Jesus say? Jesus says, let your light shine before men. He says, don't hide your light, but let it shine in such a way that when people see it, they glorify their Father who is in heaven. So there's a way for you to shine your light that gives glory to God. And there's a way for you to shine that same light that gives glory to you. Same thing. You might be doing the exact same thing. And, and, and the heart behind it, the spirit behind it, the attitude behind it will either reflect glory to God or give glory to you. And if he gives glory to you, not only is there not grace behind that, but you've already got your reward. So what's he saying to the young men? He says, young men, don't you worry about this. You think, because what did Jesus say to his disciples? They were talking about who was going to be first and who was going to be best. He said, well, it's not that way in the kingdom of God. You want to be great, you've got to be a servant of all. For God opposes the proud, but he exalts the humble. So these young men are trained up, and young women, they're trained up in a culture outside of the kingdom of God, which tells you if you want to get to the top, you've got to step on somebody in the middle. If you want to get to the top, you've got to push your way into the top. Nobody's going to do that for you. God says you can get, you get somewhere that way, but you'll be opposing God, and God will be opposing you. Or you can let God lift you up at the right time. I used, to, I used to daydream about how God was going to get me where I needed to be. And I planned all these scenarios in my head. Just get in the front of the right person or do this. You know, I, there was a period of time where I wanted to just be a musician. And I thought, you know, if I could run into the right person. I mean, you, when you're a teenager, you, you fantasize about like running into somebody in the airport and they're like, it looks like you play guitar. Why don't you play something for me? That never happens. <laughs> but you imagine it could. You scheme and you think like, how can I, how, how am I going to get there? How am I going to get where I need to be? And I'm not saying there's not work involved. There's not diligence involved. But when God exalts someone, it's in the right time. And that same hand of God exalts you is the hand of God that's protecting you from all those things that could destroy what God's called you to do. 
When God exalts you, nobody can tell you you don't belong there. When you exalt yourself, you open yourself up to a whole bunch of things because, because it might be out of season. You might be in the wrong place at the wrong time. When you push yourself to the top, you deal with those consequences. Look what he says. Humble yourself into the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Can we just settle this right now? God desires to exalt you. Didn't we just read the scripture? He wants to exalt you. It's going to be where he wants. It's going to be when he wants. If you think that God is constantly trying to keep you down, that attitude gets in the back of your head and you'll find yourself fighting against God. Let's just deal with real humility and false humility. Can we do that for a minute? I know many of you are familiar with the concept, but there is a worldly false humility that brings no glory to God. And that is that attitude that says, why would God ever want to use me? God could, oh, I don't think God, it sounds so humble to our friends. Oh, why? Oh, God probably wouldn't use someone like me for who am I? And I, I could never be, you know, and we, we, we say all these things and they sound humble. But it's the same attitude that the proud person has. The proud person says, look at me. Of course God can use me. Look at all the gifts I bring to the table. Look at, all, look at everything I've got. God is lucky to have me. Both of those people have the same problem. They are entirely self-centered. The person who says, well, yeah, God will use me because I've got these gifts, he's looking at himself. The person says, I, God couldn't possibly use me because look who I am. I'm low. I'm a worm. You're thinking about you. You're using all these first-person adjectives, pronouns, sorry. You're saying, me, I, look at me. I couldn't be used by God. Why would God want to use someone like me? You're, you're focusing on you. The Christ-like humility that we're looking for says this. Without him, I can do nothing. But through him, all things are possible. The Christ-like humility says, is there anything too hard for God? Christ-like humility is found in people like Mary who say, Lord, here's your bondservant. Let it be done to me according to your word. Let it be done to me according to your word. The angel had said to her, is there anything too hard for God? She accepted it. I guess not. There's nothing too hard for God. So here I am. I'm your bondservant. I'm a slave to God. Let him do whatever he wants through me. She stopped asking the questions whether or not she was worthy or not because that's not the issue. The issue is not whether or not you're worthy of the grace of God. The issue is not whether or not you're worthy to be used by God. The issue is, is Jesus Christ worthy? He doesn't use you because you're good. He uses you because he's good. It says this, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. There's a great deal of anxiety in this culture of ours, isn't there? How am I going to get where I need to get? We're constantly pushing at the ceiling. You're either lazy and you don't care, or you're ambitious and you're pushing and you've got to get yourself somewhere. God's not looking for lazy people. This isn't laziness to say God will exalt you in the right time. Do you know why? Because this God exalting you still requires obedience. I don't know, you guys don't sound like you totally agree with that, but it is true that you can't just sit on the couch and say, God will exalt me when he wants to. You can't just stay home watching cartoons and say, if God wants to exalt me, he'll exalt me. God's not going to knock you out, put you in a trance and put you in front of a bunch of people and start doing stuff with you. God will exalt you through obedience. 
You're going to have to step out in faith. It's going to feel like a risk. It's going to feel at some point like, who am I? But stop thinking about who am I and start thinking about who is he. There's a great anxiety that comes on us when we worry. How am I going to get where I need to be? What do I need to do to make it happen? I got a family that I need to take care of. I've, I've got people that are depending on me. How do I get all this done? He says, cast your anxiety on him. If you were to look back at the original in this culture, when they used a phrase like cast something, one of the best examples I've heard that talks about in, in, that, in this time, they would often use that phrase uh, when you'd have a pack animal and you, your pack animal had all of this luggage, all of this stuff on top of it. And after a while, it would get tired, so you'd bring a fresh ox, you'd bring a fresh mule or whatever, and you would transfer all of the burden from one animal to the other burden. That was casting the burden onto this animal. God is asking you to cast your anxiety, your worries, your fears, your doubts, the concerns you have about your kids, the concerns you have about your job, the concerns you have about ministry. Put all those things onto him for he cares for you. You've heard me say this before, but when I, was, when I was younger, I read this different. When I was younger, I used to think that giving my cares to Jesus was like giving my sin to Jesus. Because, you know, I'd read this scripture where he, you know, this sea of forgetfulness. He just, as far as the east is from the west, he removes it from us. I, I pictured giving my cares to God and he just threw them away. But that's not what the scripture says. It says you cast it onto him. God is not throwing your cares away and saying, <laughs> they don't matter. He's bearing it. He's carrying it. Casting your anxieties on him for he cares for you. He's not a careless God. He's not a God that's, that's just saying, you know what? You don't matter that much. You're just a pawn in my game. He's a God that created you individually. He's a God that created you with a unique and valuable place in the planet for this season, for right now. And your cares aren't nothing to him. They're not worthless to him. They're not light to him. But of course, they're not heavy to him either, are they? Because to him, all things are possible. So when he casts, he says, cast them onto me. If you've got anxieties, if you've got worries, if you're... I mean, we can definitely use this in all sorts of contexts. But the context right here are these young people that are saying, how do I get where I need to be? How do I get, I know God wants to use me for great things, so how do I get there? He says, chill out, guys. Humble yourselves. It's kind of in our culture's DNA that we believe that the young have all the answers all the time. Because when you're 20 to 30, 18 to 35, you're the target market. All the commercials are aimed at you. Well, like, I mean, not the heart disease pills and stuff, but, you know, most of them. When Apple wants to sell something, they're marketing to you. When Coke wants to sell something, they're marketing to you. The world tells you that you're the most important thing on the planet. And it's, it's a great shock. It's why people go through midlife crises because they realize I'm not as important as I thought I was, you know. And there's this, there's this attitude even in the church where if we don't do it young, it's not worth doing at all, you know. And I believe God loves the young and he loves the old together, but 
I believe that that's what church should look like, young and old. There might be some moments where you don't like the song and they don't like the song. There might be some moments where you don't like the decorations, they don't like the decorations. There might be some moments you don't like the style of this or that, but God's called us together as a family. You don't say, hey, you don't say to your family, hey, we're going to do Thanksgiving, just the teenagers. Stay home, Grandma. We don't need you cramping our style. We all come together. And in those different parts and in those different generations, there's greatness. There's something wonderful about it. We don't need to keep reinventing the wheel. God's called us all together because even though we call each ourselves different generations, scripturally, we're alive at the same time. We're the same generation. We've got a purpose right now. God's using us all together. The scripture in Jeremiah, we quoted it. We talked about it on Monday night in prayer. But they will all go up together, the young, the old, the lame, the blind. Everyone's going to go up to Zion together. So he's saying to these young people, don't worry about when you're going to get your chance. Now, you might be sitting here thinking, I'm 60. I don't need to worry about that. I think that may apply to you just as much. Because we all have those moments where we want to say, you know, when am I going to get my shot? When am I going to get my chance to do this? When am I going to get my chance to do that? And he says, humble yourselves and let God lift you up when it's time to lift you up. Let's read that verse in Philippians 2 that many of you would already know where I'm going. But it talks about how Jesus came to the planet, how he came and submitted himself to God. And it tells us to have the same attitude as Jesus. Verse 5, Philippians 2, 5, he says this, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Isn't that amazing? Look at Jesus. Here's what he does. He comes to the earth. He's got All of the splendor of heaven he leaves behind. All the greatness of deity he leaves behind. And he takes on the same skin that you and I have. Takes on the same human limitations that we have. He has to sleep. He has to go to the bathroom. He has to eat. All of these things. He has temptations. I mean, there are moments, you know, he stands in the wilderness and and it says that Satan tempted him for 40 days. And we think just because he's Jesus, it didn't affect him. But don't you know that he had to address issues in his own soul? That yeah, he resisted every single temptation. He fought it. He resisted it with the word of God. But it doesn't mean it was any less of a temptation to him. He still had to, he still had to say no to himself at times. We see that in the garden. Not my will, but yours be done. Doesn't that show you that there might have been a, a slight difference in his own will? That he submitted to God? And here he comes, he empties himself, and he takes on the form of a bondservant. That's the Greek word doulos. It means slave. Every writer 
of the epistles of the New Testament, every letter in the New Testament. I'm not talking about the book, the Gospels or the book of Acts. I'm talking about the letters. Every single writer of every one of those letters at one point says, I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Paul said it. James said it. Jude said it. Peter said it. John said it. They all say it. I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Now, what does the scripture say? I mean, because literally we say bondservant and that sounds clean and that sounds cool. But literally in the Greek, doulos just means slave. What does the Bible say? It says he no longer calls us slaves. Jesus says, I don't call you slaves, I call you friends. The scripture says that, when the, that we've not received the spirit of slavery, but we've received the spirit of adoption in which we cry out, Abba, Father. What is that saying to us? God will never treat you like a slave. He treats you like a son. He treats you like a daughter. But we submit our lives as a slave to him. Do you see the difference? God doesn't, God doesn't treat you like a slave. He doesn't abuse you. He doesn't, he doesn't just boss you around without giving you some hope. He doesn't, he, I mean, you, you're part of the family. You're one of his kids now. But we submit our lives willingly as bondservants of Jesus Christ, just like Jesus did, bondservant of God. Took on the form of, bonds, of a bondservant, becoming obedient, even to the point of death, even death on the cross. So what st- it started with humility. Started with him emptying himself of everything that he could have used to make himself important. Humbled himself and was obedient. And when he did this, God lifted him up. Exalted him high above all things. Gave him the name above every name. See, Jesus came and laid his name down. And for this reason, God gave him a better name. It says that in Hebrews. It says he has obtained a better name. I'm not talking about a name like Logan is a name or Tony is a name. I'm talking about that place, that authority, that, that majesty that belongs to him now, the glory that's his, that name that every name bows to. It's because he humbled himself. He emptied himself. When you got born again, I don't know how everybody came to this, but some of you came from the gutter and some of you came from, you know, really successful paths and successful jobs. All of us came to Jesus as babies, right? No matter what you were, no matter what degrees you had behind your name, nobody got further up in the line. It wasn't like walking on the airplane where you got to walk on the red carpet. Have you ever done that? You ever flown, like United Airlines does this, it's the silliest thing in the world. There's a line, and it's for normal plebes like us. And then there's a line like the, the platinum members, right? And there's a red bath rug, basically. That's, it's, <laughs> it doesn't look like royalty or riding, walking down this rug. It just looks like it's had a bunch of people with muddy feet walking on a red carpet. But if you dare... Like if you're the last person to get on the plane and everyone else is on and you start walking on the, on the red carpet, they will send you back. Walk on the proper line. You don't get to walk on the red carpet. You didn't purchase that ticket. It's the silliest thing in the world. But it works for them, right? They make a little bit more money off that. Do you think that that's what God does when we come to him? Of course not. Of course not. He's not taking, you know, Dr. So-and-so gets to go down here and and. Jimmy, the former crackhead, get, has to go down this line. We all come to him as babies, which was the hardest thing for the Pharisees to get. 
That's the thing that Nicodemus struggles over. Jesus says, you know, if you want to be part of my kingdom, if you want to be born, you've got to be born again. You've got to start over. And first of all, Nicodemus struggles with that concept because he's thinking of it in a natural way. But you think about it, they all struggled with that. Jesus basically says, you have to start over. Many of them didn't want to start over. They walked around and people called them father. They walked around and people gave them respect. They have to start over in the kingdom of God. That's hard. That's why Jesus said it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not because God's got a problem with money. It's because God's got a problem with a heart that's more attached to the money than to him. And a heart that's so inflated by his own personal wealth and personal um, place in the world that he doesn't know he's got to enter just like everybody else. Take everything off and enter that very eye of the needle. Take everything off and enter the kingdom of God and he'll put everything back on. At the end of the day, the goal is you being exalted. But it's not so you're exalted, so that he's exalted. In exalting you, he's the one that gets the glory. You exalt yourself, you get the glory. But if God exalts you, he gets the credit, he gets the glory. And that's the end game, isn't it? You have to be okay with the fact that God does desire to exalt you. You have to be humble enough to let him do it. See, if humility is for you always to keep yourself on the ground, you won't fully be used by God. But if humility says, God, use me for whatever you want to use me for, It's all going to be you. I can't do anything without you, but I know you can do all things. So use me. God will exalt you. Just to go back to that point that Jesus made about the lamppost. He said, nobody hides a light under a bushel. Nobody hides a light under a bed. But they place it on a lampstand so that it gives light to all that are in the house. Many of us are uncomfortable with the idea that God would ever place you on the lampstand. Why does he place lights on lampstands? So it gives light to everyone in the house, right? Look, he says, let your light shine in such a way that people will see it, right? If you have a problem being seen by people, if you can't handle that, then you, you, you won't fully bring all the glory to God that, he's, that he desires to do through your life because you'll be resisting. I mean, just as much as we resist God, by trying to exalt ourselves. I've seen people resist God, not letting him exalt them. Think about what, what God exalting you looks like. Maybe we need to figure that out for a minute. What does it look like for God to exalt you? It doesn't mean that you get, you know, parties thrown in your name and front page, you know, for he's a jolly good fellow and you get to wear a crown around. That's all we're talking about. God's talking about putting you in a position where people can see you and are influenced by you. God's talking about putting you in a position where he can use you in a greater measure. Now, God can use you in the gutters as much as he can use you in the palace. But he says, I am going to exalt the humble because those are the people I can trust with it. You ever wonder why Jesus said the meek will inherit the earth? Because they're the only ones that can be trusted with it. So here's what he's looking for. Humble people who will say, God, your will be done. I'm willing to wait. I'm not going to force my way into a position where I feel important. I'm not going to force my way and put other people down on the way there. I'm going to let you exalt me at the right time. You'll lift me up in due season. You'll put me where you need to put me. I will be obedient 
When the time comes to step out in faith, I'll step out in faith, but I'm going to wait on you. You have to have that attitude, though, that you're okay with him putting you on a lampstand so people can see you. Here's the great thing. He says, when I put you on a lampstand, people see you, but they give glory to the Father. Isn't that great? There is a way. When God exalts you, he gets credit. Nobody can say you don't belong. People said it to Jesus, but it didn't matter. When God exalts you, that's the only opinion that matters, isn't it? How many times did people say to Jesus, what right do you have to say that? Who gave you the right to forgive sins? Who gave you the right to heal on the Sabbath? Who gave you the right to say what you're saying, that you're the son of God? Jesus didn't worry about that. Why? Because he waited 30 years in obedience to God. And when God said, now's your time, this is your moment. This is when I want you to step out into your ministry. He was obedient to God and he walked it out. So it didn't matter what Joe Blow said about him. It didn't matter what the Pharisees or the Sadducees said. It didn't matter what the heathens said. As long as he knew who he was in Christ, that's all that mattered. If you know who you are in Christ, if you are completely satisfied in him, and if you're just as happy doing what you do behind closed doors when no one sees it, God will use that kind of person. But just as much as you've got to be happy doing it behind closed doors, you've got to be okay doing it in front of people if God wants you to do it in front of people. Because there will be a time of exalting. He loves to exalt the humble. But he'll put the proud down. That's why it says humble yourself into the mighty hand of God. Don't you know it's far better for you to humble yourself than have God have to humble you? Right? Because God humbling you is more like the emperor's new clothes moment. <laughs> Where you realize you're naked in front of a bunch of people. God's not, gonna, God's not out to embarrass you. Let me just say that. But there'll be moments if you refuse to be humbled, if you refuse to humble yourself, that you have to be humbled. And that's not a pretty sight. God doesn't want to embarrass you. He wants you to humble yourself. You know, I was reading some of the beginnings of Thanksgiving Day in our nation. Of course, a lot of times when we talk about Thanksgiving, even in Canada, people dress up like pilgrims, which is kind of funny because that's not our heritage. You know, that's it's the American heritage, but that's not the Canadian Thanksgiving heritage. Thanksgiving kind of grew organically in Canada. It wasn't just the Canadians copying an American holiday. It started here as well with some of the first explorers that came to Canada from France and from England alike. And when they came, they understood that uh, we should give thanks to God for what he's done. And even some of our founding fathers, when they, when they uh, the fathers of confederation, when they put this together, these were, this was some of the language, guys like Samuel de Champlain, the explorers, but then even later on when people in government would say we need to have a day of thanksgiving. In modern times, we say a day of thanksgiving to God, but back then, both in Canadian and American resolutions where they would say this is going to be a day of thanksgiving, they would often say it's a day of thanksgiving and humiliation before God. Now, when we hear humiliation, that's a bad word, isn't it? means embarrassment. But what's the root word of humiliation? It's just humble. So what they were saying is this is a day of thanksgiving and humbling ourselves before God. So it wasn't a bad thing. It wasn't like humiliation, I'm going to pull a prank on you. It was humiliation, let's humble ourselves before God. A thankful heart 
is a heart that will stay humble. And a humble heart is a heart that will stay thankful because you understand that anything good came from the Father. Isn't that wonderful? I want you to know that God cares more about you than you care about yourself. He's more invested in your future than you are. He loves you, and I've said this so many times, you're probably tired of me saying it, but no matter how big of an egotist you are, he loves you more than you could love yourself. You have to know that you're not a cannon fodder to him. You're not a pawn in his game. He created you and he knows you and he's known you since before you were even in your mother's womb. And he cared for you then. He's the shepherd and the guardian of your soul. We have to stop believing that it's in our own best interest to promote ourselves, to push our own agendas, to make sure we make it to the top. We might find out at the end that what we thought was the top was the bottom or what we thought was the bottom was the top. Our goal should be like Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all those things that you think are so important, all the things that everybody else is looking for, he doesn't say forget them, you're not going to have them. He says all those things will be added to you. When he talks about the things that the Gentiles eagerly seek for, he says your father knows you need those things. But seek first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness. Those things will be added. You don't need to worry about them. You set your heart to the kingdom of God. When you're kingdom-minded, you don't care who gets the credit. You just as long as God gets the credit. When you're kingdom-minded, you don't know, you don't care who's seen, as long as the job gets done. When you're kingdom-minded, you're attached to the head of the body. It doesn't matter, as long as the parts are moving together, the body is healthy and the body is growing, and the body is building itself up in love. When you're kingdom-minded, you're okay with being at the bottom and you're okay with being at the top. Let's cast our anxiety on him. If you've been concerned about how you're going to get where God wants you to be, if you have dreams and you don't know how they're going to happen, let me tell you, it's not going to happen by you inserting yourselves into situations. It's not going to happen by you promoting yourself. It's going to happen by you just humbling yourself into the hand of God. You ever wonder how a guy like David was so hidden from everybody's sight, even his own family didn't think he was anything until that moment that he comes to the battlefield. Even the moment before that when, Nate, when you know, uh, Samuel comes by and says, I'm here to anoint the next king. Nobody thought of this kid. But when David finally gets to a moment where God says, step up, this heathen, this uncircumcised Philistine's insulting your God. He has great confidence in God. He's humble. But his humility shows up as bravery because he says, hey, if we're the people of God and that guy is not part of the people of God and he's insulting God, what are we going to do about it? Surely God will do this. See, that's humility. Humility is that boy with the rocks that says, we'll kill this guy. Hey, if God's for us and God's not with him, we're going to do this. You might say that kid, his, his own brother said he was cocky. His own brother said he was arrogant. But he was, he was hum, more humble than the rest of them. Because he says, it's not us that's going to get it done. It's God. He says this. He says, who's this guy to insult the armies of the living God? 
of Chai Elohim. Elohim meaning the, the mighty one. That Chai meaning living, like he's not just he's not just mighty in our stories and our legends. He's alive. He's working right now. I just I'm so excited for this season and time for this period in history where we're going to see the humble come to a place where it's not the humility that the world tries to promote, where you're just mealy-mouthed and falsely putting everybody, including yourself, down. We're going to see real humility, which says this, with him, we can do everything. Without him, nothing can get accomplished. But through him, all things are possible. Get that humble, that, that, that shepherd boy that's okay singing songs to God in the middle of the field. It's okay looking after the sheep nobody else wants to look after. It's okay being in the field by himself, doing the job nobody wants. But when the time comes to step up, he puts his faith in God. Those are the kind of people God wants to use. And I believe he's going to use you. If you have any anxiety about it, put it on to God. He'll take care of it. Let's just put ourselves under his hand. Let him protect, shield, nurture, and exalt at the right time. Let's let the timing be his, and let's let let it look like what he wants to look like, all right? We put our own dreams, we tag our own visions onto it. Let's just say, God, your will be done. That's not a statement of resignation. That's a statement of faith. Your will be done in my life. Let it be done in me. So let's stand up and we're going to pray.